Hi everybody, I'm Peter Jacobson, and welcome to Jake's Takes. We're so happy to have on the podcast this week, members of the, one of the great families in the game of golf, Jay Haas, Bill Haas, and Jerry Haas. Jay, as you know, is the the elder statesman, the 66-year-old, been on tour for 40-plus years He's won on the tour, on the Champions Tour. He was the 2015 President's Cup captain, the victorious captain for the United States. And his son, Bill, also a PGA Tour winner. And Jay's brother, Jerry, who also played the tour. He won on the Corn Ferry Tour. He's played in Europe, played on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Now the head coach of the very successful Wake Forest University golf team. So it's going to be interesting to catch up with the family Haas. Well, first, Jan wanted to know if, you know, what kind of payment I'm going to get from this, and can we get it ahead of time? Can you put it into our account or anything? Or Well, I know, I know we're in a slowdown in golf right now, and all I pay is scale. I pay uh, what you made when you used to mow lawns back when you were a kid. I, By scale, I, what I made last week, you can, you'll double that. I, I pay $1.25 per hour, which Ooh. was what the Haas family lawn mowing fee was back when you were a kid. That's, so that's about right. It's about right. Yeah. Go over that. Hey, uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you bet. This is uh, kind of an this is a crazy, crazy time. I don't know what you guys are doing, but Jan and I are up in New York with our with our daughter and still son-in-law. Up there. Yeah, we're up yeah. here. They're doctors. They're working, and there's uh, there's no school. So we flew up a couple of weeks ago to watch the kids. So we've got basically Nana and Papa daycare all day long. Man, and I will man. say this. I, I will say this. I will say this. Daycare workers and stay-at-home moms and teachers are way underpaid. Way uh, underpaid and underappreciated. Yeah, I agree. It's unreal. Oh, my gosh. Golly. Yeah, it's, it's nonstop, it's been, isn't it? it? It is nonstop. And we've, yeah. it's actually very rewarding. As you know, you've got, how many How many grandkids do you have now to eat? Ten? Have, you've got ten? We have ten, yeah. It's so much Yo, fun. Five? Four. We have four grandkids. Four. And just, being with them all day, every day, it's, uh, yeah. it is a blessing. It's 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 so right. much fun. Well, they'll they'll remember, you know, when they're twenty, twenty five years old. You remember that? What what what's that? what was that about? Why were you there? You know, they'll. <laughs> what was we were so What was that old guy's left? name? <laughs> That's right. Maybe they'll change my diaper. Maybe they'll change my diaper in a few years. Man. Hey, well, let me let me get into a couple things uh, b- before we uh, before we deteriorate uh, into silliness like we normally do. This sure. this is uh, what we're going through in the world of golf. Obviously, you and I are the same age. You're just a little bit older than me, or a couple months older than me. But I thought we'd kind of seen it all in our careers of forty right. plus years. But this is this is. This is something like we've never experienced, not just right. in the game of golf, but in society. What What are your observations? Well, gosh, there's no formula for it. I'm just thinking of all the different scenarios that uh, you, you you just don't. People are talking about when are you going to play again. Well, you don't just all of a sudden say, uh, "Okay, we're going to have the tournament starting next week." You know, I mean, there's just so much planning that goes into it. Things that I've never ever thought about, and I mean, I have, I guess, but you know, talking about tenting and grandstands and all this stuff, you know, principal. Uh, I talked with Miller a little bit and uh, a couple weeks ago, and principal was, you know, at the point where they've got to write two six-figure checks to these people uh, to start the build out, you know, and, and they don't know what to do, and so they, you know, pushed it back or whatever, and so they. 
uh, they just didn't feel like they could they could do it. But it's just uh, you know they were talking about uh, almost little stuff like the Ryder Cup point system. I mean, almost who gives a rip right now? <laughs> you know who who makes a Ryder Cup team and whether it's pushed back and the uh, you know Augusta being maybe in October. So is that on this year's tour schedule or is it on next year's tour? <laughs> it's just. Uh, uh, just a whole can of worms that have opened up here, and it just so many different things. World ranking, and how do you do that? And these young guys who now this is their first year. These young guys who just got their tour card, and now they've played, you know, eight or ten events, and now they're they're done basically. You know, they're not going to get in any events anymore. Yeah, it's so hard because the structure. Uh, when you look at the big picture, this is a this is a world pandemic that we have to pay attention to, and. Everything else pales in comparison, but when we come out of this at the other end, there are organizations like the Principal Charity Classic you were talking about or the AT&T Byron Nelson or the Ryder Cup. All of these organizations that have depended on the PGA Tour and the European Tour for years, now that's the lifeblood of what they do, and everything is on hold. And when we do get to the other side of this thing, how do you pick up? And that's that's the most difficult thing. I know in my world, Peter Jacobson Sports, as you know, we do these tournaments. We've we've uh, created events and we've built out events. You are writing checks, sometimes two to three million dollars, to build your bleachers, to build your sky suites, to be able to bring in the courtesy cars. It is a huge stoppage of of manpower and 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 a huge expense to get this taken care of. Well, let me ask you, you were the uh, captain of the President's Cup, the winning President's Cup team in 2015. What would you say about the Ryder Cup? Spricker is going to be the captain this year. It's being held at Whistling Straits uh, in September. What would you suggest in terms of qualification? Because there's no tournaments to allow these players to, to qualify for the Ryder Cup team. Yeah, I, I think, honestly, Peter, the best uh, scenario would be to delay it a year and push it back like uh, they did there during 9-11, and everything just went back a year, and I think that's probably going to be the best uh, case scenario rather than try to jam it in a schedule uh, when the time comes, uh, use that week for, for another event. Uh, you know, I think there's been talk about the PGA moving to that week's date uh, perhaps uh, being in, at uh, Harding Park in San Francisco this year, I think they can play almost at any time of the year, and so it, uh, you know, that could be something. But I think that so many of these events are such uh, great events, but they're really such a small thing on the big scale of things of uh, this, as you said, the world pandemic. It, it's just something that we have never seen before. Hopefully we never have to deal with it again, but my goodness, it, uh, there's so much involved with, uh, uh, with this scheduling and with for everybody. And you, as you know, when you're putting on these events, how many people it affects. It's not just the players. It's not just the players and the caddies and the, you know, there's volunteers and the people who uh, cook the food and deliver the food. I mean, it's just on and on and on, and so many people are affected. And you know, something as as uh, trivial as a as a golf tournament is almost gets put on the way back burner. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when you think of a PGA Tour event. I would I would uh, offer that the smallest percentage of those involved that are affected would be the players because there's sure. there's there's roughly a hundred or hundred and fifty, but. Clearly, they cast the biggest shadow because people come to watch Tiger and Rory and Stricker and and all the players. Uh, but let me ask you this: this is a this is a what if. Let's say I'm in charge of the Ryder Cup and you're the captain, and I come to you and I say we are going to play in September as scheduled, but we have a new way to qualify. I'm going to give you a scenario that you can pick your team. Uh, what would it be? Would it be something like four qualifiers and eight picks? Or could you see maybe going to 12 picks? You're the captain. You get to pick your 12. Does that make any sense? Well, it does in other sports for sure. You know, you think about the Olympic basketball team, something like that. Uh, you, you know, there there's tryouts and all that, and they, and they make this uh, – 
team up with, they kind of mesh with a certain amount of guards and forwards and centers, things like that. A little bit different in golf, obviously, because it's an individual uh, one-on-one match play thing. But And I was just reading a little bit about that, about the possibility of, uh, you know, let's let's take a flyer this year and just do uh, just do all 12 picks and that puts a lot of pressure on the captains for sure uh, and you know I was always one as you know we our first Ryder Cup teams were were just 12 the top 12 point getters that was it you know there was no picks and uh, you know, then that started when the Europeans started playing in the in the U.S. and not getting their points on their tour and things like that, and trying to balance the teams a little bit. I've always liked the fact that there is a points qualifying and that uh, it's out there for everybody to to go for. You know, it's not a popularity contest. It's not who will sell the most tickets and things like that. If you played well enough. Uh, you're on the team, so uh, I'm I'm waffling a little bit here. I, I can see the intrigue that it would bring if you had a, a team that was all 12 picks on both sides. It would be pretty interesting, but you're going to leave somebody out for sure who's probably pretty deserving, and you know there'd be comparisons. Where would this guy be? He's not a pick on the team, but he's seventh on the points list if there was a points list. So uh, that's. Uh, that would be pretty gut-wrenching, I think, to that player who possibly has never played on a team before. It's a tough call for sure, but I do think that uh, it, it's worth talking about. But at the same time, you know, I'd, I'd hate to see it go just the whole all 12 picks. Well, back in 2015, when you were the President's Cup uh, team captain, you had 10 players qualify. And you had two picks. And I remember you and I were playing at a Champions Tour event up uh, in Endicott, New York, the Dick Sporting Goods Open. And we went to dinner one night because you were, you had a week or, I don't know, might have been a couple of days to where you had to pick your team. You had to pick your two guys. And what impressed me was when you laid out the your performance sheet and you said, okay, tell me who do you think needs to be picked? And clearly to me, and I think everybody in the game, the, the two picks that had to be picked were Phil Mickelson, which you did pick, and the other one, which I know was tough for you, but it was clear to everybody else, but it was hard to you because it was your son, Bill, who you eventually did pick, and he went on to be, make the the winning putt, the clinching point for the United States to retain the President's Cup. But talk us through that. How difficult was that? to be able to, uh, without looking like there was nepotism involved, you had to just basically go on Bill's performance. Well, you're right. It was a tough time. I was uh, praying that Bill would have some good events to move into the top ten so it wouldn't be uh, that nepotism card played. You know, Peter, uh, you know, I looked at, at past performances. I looked at past picks as well, and I think, uh, I'm going to throw a lot of 11s out here to you, but in the there were at the time I think uh, there were 11 Presidents Cups at that time. Well, 10 out of the 11 times the 11th player was picked uh, during in in that uh, in, on those point systems, and so Bill sat at a number 11. You know, I talked to a lot of the different uh, assistant captains. I talked to other players. Uh, shared some texts with Tiger. Uh, he was injured at the time. Uh, it was really kind of funny because Phil was not having a great year, and I was thinking to myself, uh, what captain in that era didn't have Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods on his team? <laughs> and so it was a uh, it, it was a tough uh, tough thing to fill those slots uh, with with players who didn't have the accomplishments that those two guys did. Uh, Phil was down the list, but the guys, you know, uh, Fred Couples was probably the most vocal uh, to want Phil on the team. And now Phil is going to have to jump over quite a few players, but it's almost like having uh, Michael Jordan on your team, maybe not having the best of years, or, uh, you know, Kareem on your team. I don't know, somebody who has just been there, done that, and so... 
Phil, Phil is such a team leader in the in the off the course, in the locker room, in the team room, uh, and that meant a lot. But that also meant leaving JB Holmes off the team, who was number twelve at the time. And JB, as you know, can be very dominant, long hitter, uh, and had a and had a great year. The problem that I think I faced was none of those guys from eleven to twenty really were distinguishing themselves at the time. Nobody had had any great runs of two or three events where they finish in the top five or anything like that they were all just kind of treading water and so you know I didn't feel uh, a huge amount of pressure from outside sources or anything like that the media in regards to picking Bill uh, but you know the guys on the on the team and the assistant captains all assured me that he needed to be picked and I'll never forget a, a text that I got from Tiger, uh, you know, I was one that I said, well, who, who should I pick? Who do you like? And he said, well, your son needs to be on the team. Uh, and that was, I just remember, it, you know, maybe paraphrasing or whatever, but certainly that was, uh, he, I had the backing from him uh, as a, a player who had been there many times and maybe knew what I was going through. So, uh, you know, that felt pretty good. And obviously Bill played well that week. Uh, I, you know, I was almost too hard on him in the, in being being his dad, uh, but as a captain, as the as as a player and someone that was observing the guys playing that week, uh, he was playing as good as anybody. Well, let me talk a little bit about you. Uh, you've had such a incredible career, one of the most consistent players in the game, and I'm I watched you a couple of weeks ago at the age of 66 have another great performance out of the. Uh, uh, the old classic in Newport Beach where you've won a couple of times. Did you know that you were the second oldest player to win on the Champions Tour? Did you know that? I did know that, actually. <laughs> and that was uh, a few years ago, and I had my wonderful wife, Jan, on the bag there. Probably somebody asked me a couple of days ago, what was your most memorable win? And I would say my first win, you know, knowing that I could you know, win on the PJ Tour, but certainly then my last with her caddying for me, uh, it was something that I will never, ever forget. But, uh, yeah, I, I, not the oldest, trying to set that bar, but uh, it was uh, it was a good week. I loved that golf course, uh, Newport Beach Country Club. As you know, it's just uh, one of our most fun events and really a, a great old-timey golf course seems to suit me well. Well, you've always been one of the uh... – calming voices and the most one of the most knowledgeable players on the PGA Tour. You're always on the policy board. In fact, I think you sit right now on the Champions Tour board because you're such a clear thinker. And, and, and obviously one of the things that needs, we need that right now in the world that we're, that we're in. But when you look back on your career, you won the Bob Jones Award, which was presented to you by the USGA for Distinguished Sportsmanship in Golf, the Jim Murray Award presented by the media, and, and also uh, probably one of the most important awards, the Payne Stewart Award for, for character, for charity, and sportsmanship. Don't you think that the Hall of Fame, obviously, is something that everybody likes to get into, but uh, it, it's kind of fun, and I think you should be very proud to be recognized for not only how well you play inside the ropes, but for what you do outside the ropes. And I don't think anybody in the game has done for the game what you've done, Jay. Well, Peter, you're nice to say all that. And, uh, you know, you can tick off quite a few of those awards yourself. So uh, I, I think it's just the era we grew up in with my Uncle Bob. And I think you had a, as close a relationship as anybody with Arnold Palmer. And they set such great examples for us to carry forward. And I think all of us in this game, no matter what age, had someone to kind of put their arm around us and show us the way, the proper way, the way to do things the right way. And, you know, you can see it uh, going forward. I think some of the young guys uh, are such great representatives of what we have on the PGA Tour now. And it's good to see that. I feel good about where golf is headed. But, you know, I, I guess uh, I owe it to, uh, as I said, my Uncle Bob, but also my dad. I can just hear him say, to this day, it doesn't cost a nickel to be nice to people. And, you know, let your clubs do the talking and some of these things that uh, have stuck into my head since I was 
six or seven years old, uh, you know, I'm sure you've, you had people like that, your dad, uh, some of the pros that you hung around at, at a young age, you just, uh, it, they talk the right way. And golf seems to bring out the best of, in people, I think. It's such a humbling game. And the, uh, the you know, there, there are certain guys who have a little more cockiness than others, and usually they can back it up. But at the same time, it's still... Uh, the kind of game that you just uh, have to respect and show respect, and I think that uh, it's kind of easy, I think, in that regard. It's, it's, it's easy to take that path. One of the things that we experienced when we were young on tour was there really was no Champions Tour, or I should call it the PJ Tour Champions Senior Tour, whatever you want to call it. There was no tour, so we actually had a chance to hang out with Sam Snead and Gene Lister and Arnold Palmer and Dan Sykes and and Bob Goldie, your Uncle Bob that you're talking about, and they were the ones that really taught us the ropes. They weren't afraid to pull us aside and chastise us for doing something wrong or saying something wrong. And as great as the Champions Tour is today, when players turn 50, they graduate to that tour. I do think that we do miss a little bit of that old sage advice given from a player like a Jay Haas down to a, another player like a Bill Haas. Obviously, Bill gets that at home at the dinner table for <laughs> you and Jan. But well, you're right. Uh, I know that you know the names that you mentioned. Uh, throw Art Wall in there. He seemed to play a good bit toward uh, into his fifties, and certainly Sam uh, was into his sixties. I guess he was still playing out there. It's great to listen to the old stories, but also to just uh, to hear their opinion on how things should should be and maybe how they used to be. Uh, some great stories from Bob in, in regards to the PGA Tour breaking away from the PGA of America and why they did it. And uh, it's, There's certain things that I think guys today miss out on just because they don't know that story so much. And, you know, we, we were fortunate to, to go through that era and to be, be around those guys when they were just forming the PGA Tour uh, and I think that uh, a lot of people think that the PGA Tour didn't start until the mid-90s when Phil and Tiger came on the scene. But uh, <laughs> there were some unbelievable great players uh, prior to that, obviously, and Hall of Fame guys. And uh, we were pretty blessed to, to learn from them. And I love the story that you tell all the time about uh, your autograph that Arnold uh, chastised you a little bit when you were playing a practice round with him. Oh my gosh, that that that's a great story. I was signing autographs after a, an, an exhibition I'd done with Arnold, and you, when you get when you get to, it doesn't matter which who you are when you start signing thirty or forty or fifty things in a row, you can get sloppy with your signature. And Arnold grabbed me by the back of my neck and he said, "Look, if you're signing a check or a contract, you can slop it on there, but if you're signing a piece of memorabilia, you sign it so people can read it." And that that message really hit home with me. And the cool thing about it is that has been passed now all the way to even a rookie on the PGA Tour. They know about Arnold Palmer, and that's really that's great about the game of golf is history gets passed from one generation to the next. Oh, you're exactly right. And what a great man he was and how much he meant to, uh, to all of us. Uh, certainly, on the course, but off the course, too. And just what a great guy. What a friend he was to everybody. Just wanted to be one of the guys, somebody that we could all sit down and have a beer with and ask about how it used to be and how it should be going forward. He did such a great job uh, with the Bay Hill Classic going uh, on our on our tour now and just somebody that's pretty irreplaceable. All right, one last thing I'm going to ask you because I'm going to talk to Bill today. And I'm going to put you guys on the same podcast. Give me a little bit about Bill. Are you more nervous for your son, Bill, when you watch him play than you are for you? Or are you more concerned about you? I don't know if you understood that question or not. but Yeah, uh, and I get, I get asked that a lot, actually. And uh, people say, would you rather have Bill hit putting a five-footer or are you putting a five-footer? <laughs> and I, I'd much rather have him doing it. I know what, what that thing looks like to me when I'm standing over it, and I have such great confidence in him and uh, what, a, what a great player he is. Any of those guys that are on the PGA Tour and have had success in one tournaments are amazing players. So 
Uh, I, you know, I'm nervous for him just because I know how much he wants it and how much it means and how hard this game is and how hard it is to win a golf tournament uh, on the PGA Tour. So uh, I'm nervous in that regard, but at the same time, each shot when it comes, uh, I can relate in in my world how how nerve wracking that can be. You know, standing over, uh, you know, you mentioned. Newport Beach on on Sunday there on the last day the pins over on the right there's water there's a bunker and all this stuff and I was wishing anybody else could have been hitting that shot but me that day so <laughs> I know that uh, standing there watching Bill do it is is a little more calming to me because I think he's wonderful obviously as a boy as a son and all that but but as a player uh, he just uh, he hits so many good shots and. I, I love watching him play. People always ask me, who's better, Bill or you? And I say, well, it's not even close. We haven't kept scoring a long time because <laughs> he whips me every time. But, uh, yeah, I love watching him play, and I'm much more relaxed watching him play than trying to do it myself. <laughs> well, I do know this. He uh, he hits it further than you. I know that. At 66 years old, you still hit there it pretty damn not- good, I will tell you that. <laughs> There are but not he, many he, people he, who don't hit it farther than they <laughs> anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh, these kids today, they bomb it. You've been here before, you know what to do. Keep your head on straight, don't let them get to you. Put a smile on your face, get rid of that I have no idea what I'm doing with these fancy phone technology yeah. things, so I hope this is going to work. So, hey, uh, thanks for joining me. I talked to your dad this morning, and we talked about all kinds of things, but most importantly during this shutdown, what uh, what's going on in your life besides a lot of a lot of time with your kids? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm actually heading to the golf course. Now I'm trying to practice when I can, and obviously everybody tries to keep their distance and and all that. But, uh, yeah, it's just been a lot of homeschooling and playing with the kids, and it's been nice family time, actually. It's just life doesn't seem normal. What does this disruption do to a player of your caliber when these these major championships get postponed or canceled? What? Does that interrupt your preparation, or or are you just are you just kind of just kind of standing in place? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I'm a little, little different. You know, the last couple of years, I've you know I haven't had the same status, and so I haven't been in all the majors, and so uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a lot of the unknown, and you know, I feel for guys of my status of not knowing when your next start is, and then and then also the, your rookies and maybe a first or second year guy that. They need all these starts, and they want to start building a career, and uh, it's very much up in the air. And who knows what the rest of the season is going to hold? And does it even matter? You know, you watch if you watch the news, it doesn't matter. You know, you, everybody's just trying to stay safe. So, you know, I don't know. Well, it's, it's interesting. I've known you your whole life. Obviously, been very close with your mom and dad. We came through the same tour school. We've we've played together as partners in the Legends of Golf for the last I don't know five or six years, but. You've grown up in a golf family with your with your uh, uncle Bob Golby, the Masters champ from '68. I guess that would be he would be your great uncle Bob Golby. Yes. And yes. with your dad and your brother Jay Jr. playing uh, playing so much golf, you played at Wake Forest. What 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 has been what has been the the influence of your dad in your career, starting all the way back when you were a junior player? I mean, he's the only reason I'm. I play golf, and then certainly the the reason I got to be pretty good is just because I, you know, he kind of taught me in a way, you know, I was a little bit before the era of the track man and the video. It was more a lot of a lot of instruction over the phone, and then in person it was a lot of, uh, you know, how's that feel, and that doesn't feel good, okay, let's don't do that, and just kind of uh, play a little bit more athletically. Not that track man, that stuff's not athletic at all. I mean, the new golfer is very athletic. He taught me everything I know about it, and then certainly we view it as the family business. And so um, golf's been what I've known, what 
since I was a kid as the way you make a living, you know. It's interesting, your dad and I coming up in the, uh, we, we came to the tour school in 76, and our first year was 1977. Back then, there was no technology. There were no, there was no track men. We, we relied on the eyes of our teachers and, uh, and our dads and our uncles and our brothers and the people that watched us play. So now as we as we enter into this new technology age, I'm 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 a 66 year old senior golfer like your dad is now, but I try to dip into that technology from time to time. I want to know what kind of a spin rate I've got, what kind of a launch angle I I have. You're more of a field player. You don't get stuck on that technology, do you? Not a lot, but I will say you have that little bit of a feeling like I'm getting left behind if I'm not using it a little bit. Kind of like you said, you're interested in your spin rate and um, and and I think you you have to use it a little. The club companies, you know, Titleist when they when they want me in a new driver, or if I'm saying I'm not driving it well, well, the first thing they do is get you on the track man to see if they can build a club around those numbers. And like yourself and my dad, I grew up in an era where if it was too spinny, well, then you just put it a little back in your stance and flighted it. You know, you didn't uh, you didn't have that ability. And so I, I do think it's beneficial. And if you're not using it a little bit, then you're then you're losing out. Well, you won the FedEx Cup back in 2011 with probably one of the most memorable shots in a playoff over Hunter Mahan. I was on the telecast with NBC doing that, and it was the 17th hole, or now I guess it would be the 8th hole at East Lake when you hit the ball down left of the green into the into the penalty area, into the water hazard, and you played a miraculous, I guess you'd call it a, a water blast to about <laughs> two feet. Uh, did that shot surprise you as much as it surprised all of us? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I, I've told a lot of people that the, the almost the entire walk up to the green, I had almost conceded. Um, my brother was caddy, and I, I said to him, you know, well, second place isn't so bad in the first tour, in my first tour championship I've ever played in. And, um, and so I had that in my head a little bit that it was over because I'd heard the moans and groans from it going in the water. But then, Right when I saw the ball pretty much out of the water, I mean, there was a film of water underneath the ball, not much at all. Um, I just remember saying, well, I can hit that and I can get it on the green, was kind of my, I think I said to Jay Jr. And uh, so I didn't have a doubt that I thought I could hit the shot, but did I think I could hit it two feet? Not really. So that was uh, certainly fortunate. You played at Wake Forest for your uncle, Jerry, which is, it's really incredible to Haas family. I know people say the Nicholas family is the first family of golf, but for me, it's the Haas family. Your your uncle Dillard is a rules official on tour. Your uncle Jerry is the head coach of Wake Forest, who you played for. Your great uncle Bob Goldby won the Masters, and your dad uh, Jay, uh, who's such a such a fantastic player, and your brother Jay Jr., who also played at a very high level and now teaches the game. Uh, as you said earlier, it's it's, it's it really is your family business, uh, and when you get in trouble, you probably have a lot of directions you can turn. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've said that to a lot of people. I was, I was very fortunate to, when things aren't going well, I have plenty of people, you know, my dad, my Uncle Jerry when I was at Wake, uh, Dillard now who's out on the road all the time. If I have a question any, with anything in golf, I don't have to rely on myself you know i have so many people that i can bounce those questions off of and get and get an educated and correct answer uh and so i was very lucky and as, and as a rookie when i went into the locker rooms it didn't feel that awkward because i had guys like yourself who treated me i felt like a peer almost just because of my dad you know they i think everybody was nicer to me because everybody liked my dad and knew him for such a long time and i think that was a big bonus for me starting out what uh <laughs> Was it was it hard playing for your uncle Jerry? It wasn't. Um, I loved it. He was a great coach. I think he's a, the best coach out there, and um, he's got an unbelievable energy and positivity for the game, and uh, always on the go. I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain him, but he he's like a big kid, and uh, and I think that's important when you when you're around a bunch of kids all the time. But I'm biased. He's my uncle, but I wouldn't have done it any differently. That's for sure. I 
talked to Jay. I talked to Bill. This is going to be the segment about the Haas family. So uh, okay, that's pretty. It's pretty cool. I I have such respect, obviously, for you and your dad and everybody in your family because you guys you guys live the world of golf, playing and teaching and coaching. And what what what's it like for you being being the all around talented guy, playing the tour, winning on the on the uh, on the pro circuit, and now you're coaching these kids at Wake. How has your experience helped you with coaching these kids? Well, I have to go back, Peter, to um, I guess how it started. Uh, my uncle, Bob Golby, who I'm sure uh, Jay and Bill have talked about. And the one thing that always struck me about my uncle was he never, ever didn't have time for me. He always took 10 minutes to look at my swing, even if he was busy. He always was interested in what I was doing. We played together a lot. And if you think about it, Jay's 10 years older than me. So he was kind of on the PGA Tour as a young man at 22, 23 years old and traveling. And I'm 12 years old, and I really looked up to my brother. And now uh, my uncle's there because he was working for NBC Sports at that time and ran a driving range. So he was kind of my teacher from about 13 till I guess, the rest of my life. And I always just remembered how much time he gave me and when it came the time for me, I was at that crossroads at 33 years old, and I'd had a little success on uh, the Nike Tour, which is now the Corn Ferry Tour, and played a little bit on the PGA Tour, and uh, for whatever reason, just didn't get it done. And I always thought that I, I could help people. I always enjoyed helping people, and that's what you do in coaching. You're um, you're a mentor to these young men that come here. They're already very talented and they already have their own instructors and they're already really good but you can maybe show them the little nuances that separates the the good players from the average player and um that's kind of what i've done i, I wear a lot of hats psychologists you know a, a swing guru uh somebody's got to get mad at them somebody's got to be nice to them i mean it's uh, it's a ever-evolving position and i think that's why i love it so much every day is different when i go to work yeah, you're talking about your Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob Golby, who is we're referring to the Masters champion back. I think it was 1968. Is that is that correct? Did he win in 68? Yes, sir. That's correct. 1968, and uh, one of the greatest controversies with Roberto DiVincenzo, and they ended up being tied. But DiVincenzo signed for one stroke higher, so my uncle was awarded this the title and uh to this day i don't think he's got enough credit he was runner-up in the pga he was runner-up in the u.s open he won 11 times he was a very good player and he didn't start playing until he was probably 28 years old when he turned pro so i did look it up the other day he played in 477 tour events and he made 434 cuts so he was a uh, wow yeah Obviously, somebody that was there every week, he was very consistent, somebody that I admired. Obviously, I found some old video of him probably when he was in his early 30s and uh, hitting balls at St. Clair Country Club where we grew up. And I knew him maybe as an older gentleman, an older player, and I saw that video one day. I was like, oh, man, this guy could go. He was pretty good. So uh, that's uh, that's how it all started. That's um, the uncle that uh, we were lucky to have and uh, showed us good things. Every time I play in tournaments, I still play in our section events. I'm still a professional even though I'm still a coach, but I, I thank him every time I call him for teaching me the, you know, a good grip and good posture, good fundamentals. And, and those things you think, ah, well, whatever, but, um, it's so true. And when I do my recruiting, I look for guys with good, good posture, good grips, good fundamentals, because those kids tend to get better. The ones that kind of do it in a strange way, they're hard to help because when they go wrong, really only they can kind of fix it, if that makes sense. You know, it does, and it's interesting you talk about Bob Goldby and, and your brother and I talked about this, about how valuable guys like Bob Goldby are to the game of golf, not just not just in teaching and helping young players like you come up, but, but in teaching guys like us to be golf professionals, anybody professional golfer, but I want to be a golf professional. I want to I want to act professional in all aspects of my life, and that's something that Bob, along with Arnold and Jack and Gary Player and, and a lot of the players that came way before us, they taught me that. And my interaction with Bob Golby started 
not only as a player on tour, but also when I started working television, uh, whether it was the Skins game or or the Legends of Golf, I was a young player doing some TV, and Bob was always there with a with a helpful word on TV. TV's totally different than most people think. You worked for the Golf Channel for a while. You, you know how difficult it is. It's just it's a total departure from playing. And it can be a little bit intimidating at time when you've got that microphone in your hand. Very well said, uh, Peter, about being a professional. And I think we do emulate that, um, what we see around us in, in every profession, but uh, especially my uncle. And, you know, he grew up in the era, he, he played a lot of practice rounds with Ben Hogan and probably Sam Sneed's best friend and Julius Boros and Gary Player and Trevino and Nicholas. And so just think about all those great players that he was around and they kind of copied each other and kind of emulated each other, the ones that were doing well and how do you, how do you act and how do you treat people? And yeah, TV is, I did it for one year on the golf channel and people don't realize you might have a great situation and something great to say, but if they don't come to you for that moment, well, the time passes and they move on to another hole. So you have to be quick on your feet like you are and you do a, uh, tremendous job at that and it, it is something that I remember one time I told I was commentating and I said boy this is a pretty easy bunker shot right here and then the guy looked me up the next day he was so mad at me because he half scolded over the green and I said bud you were you I said man you were on the upslope you could have chunked it out it would have rolled down there you could have you could have done everything but what you did it was a really easy shot yeah I know but you can't say that on tv and make me look bad and I'm like oh all right so yeah, and you, you no, probably I, never heard of him, and I haven't either because of that right there. So. Well, it's funny. The one thing that I learned early on in television is even though I'm calling a shot of yours or Jay Haas or Bill Haas, I have to call the shot the way I see it. I, I've got no control over your ability or the way that you're assessing the shot. And if it looks easy to me, I'm going to say it looks easy. If it looks hard, uh, I'm going to say it's hard. Now, how you perform the shot, under the pressure, that's up to you. And and being, being a coach now at Wake Forest, I think you've been there over 20 years, coached players like Bill Haas and Webb Simpson, and, and uh, you actually coached Lanny's son, Lanny Watkins' son, Travis. The experience that you can bring, how much, how much do you impart to these kids on the mental side? That's probably the greatest challenge that you have. It, it is the greatest challenge. You're right, because... I remember somebody saying once, if you thought of yourself, what other people think of you, we wouldn't need sports psychologists. And it's so true. I watch these players play, and I think, gosh, these guys, this kid's really good. And then he tells you, I just don't have any confidence. And I want to say to him, how can you not have any confidence the way you play, the way you hit shots? And uh, I just don't have any confidence. And uh, I've said this, and I'll continue to say it. And I think you'll agree here, Peter, it takes a lot to be a really great player. You have to, first of all, be physically good. Uh, mentally, you have to be good. You have to persevere. You have to, you have to be able to kind of tra transition on the fly. You have to be able to go through four or five, six holes of a rough patch. You have to learn to be a good starter. You have to learn to be a good finisher. You have to, you know, it just takes a lot to be a good player. And the way the game has evolved, it's such a fine line of who makes it and who doesn't. And you look at, you know, a half a stroke a day can make the difference between being a Ryder Cupper and a guy that doesn't have a place to play. So it is imperative that I try to instill in them, you know, how much I think of them. Now, on the flip side, you know, I've always told them, look, I can tell you all that and I can tell you all that, but I'm going to also tell you what you need to get better at. And if you can't handle that, then you're probably not going to make it anyway. So, you know, don't think that I'm just picking on you or I'm too critical. I'm trying to make you better. I, I don't want to be right. I don't want to say, oh, hey, I told you so. No, I want you to, I want you to fulfill your dreams and be a tour player uh, get a degree at Wake Forest University and, you know, play some good golf. And I would say my coaching style is that I, I under-teach rather than over-teach because there's so much information out there. And, and like you said earlier, you know, how you see the shot and how I see the shot might be totally different. So you have to let the player kind of experience it. You have to let him play. 
you know, a lot of kids today, boy, they miss one shot to the right or to the left. Oh, they need a new iron or they need a new driver or they, oh, they're too upright or it's too flat. I want to just say that's, that's just part of the game. You're going to do that. What about the 95 good drives you hit? Don't dwell on the five that went to the right. So It's interesting how uh, as now, obviously at 66 years old and doing more TV than I am playing, it is interesting to me to think back in the days when, when you and I and Jay were and Curtis and uh, Jack Nicholas and, and Palmer and Norman and Saldo, when we go to the driving range, it's just our caddy and you. Nowadays, there is a posse that comes on the tee. There's a fitness guy. There's a guru. There's a nutritionist. There's a mental person. And I actually think that the modern-day player would do better if they shed themselves of a lot of the crutches, a lot of the mental and emotional crutches that they've got. Because I remember back in the day playing with Golby and Sneed and, and a lot of the older players talking about your golf swing while you're on the course. It's going to go haywire. It, it, it always does. And I just see that. And I don't know if it starts in junior golf or amateur golf, but it's, um, there are a lot of people, a lot of hangers today on tour. Yeah, I would agree. And I do, I do think it starts too early, to be honest, because my, my philosophy to recruiting is I like, a, I like a Peter Jacobson that played basketball in high school and you might have played uh, baseball and you played golf. And nowadays I'm seeing more and more kids get injured or have a bad back or a bad wrist or elbow at 18, 19, 20 years old than ever before because they've been hitting balls too long. They've been hitting way too many balls. And I always like to say I, I won about $50 million on the range, but I didn't make that much when I played. So you you have to play. And today with the phone camera and they stand there and they want to look at their swing and they want to do this and that, and I'm like, there's no consequences, though. You just rake in another ball and hit it if you hit a bad one. And you're pretty talented. The more you stand there and the more repetition, oh, yeah, now I'm hitting it great. Well, let's go to the golf course where you tee off at 1 o'clock and you hit a driver off the first. And now the second hole's a par three, and then you hit a seven iron. Then the third hole, you have to hit hybrid off the tee. And now you get to the fourth hole almost an hour later, 45 minutes, whatever, 50 minutes later, and now you've got to hit another driver. You, you, you would never practice that. You would never stand on the range and hit a driver and then wait 50 minutes and hit another driver. So playing is so important, and I don't think kids do it enough today. Um, we qualify a lot. We play a lot. I can't stress that enough to them because, like you said, you, your swing is going to go haywire. You've got to figure out, all right, I'm not very good right now. How can I spend the next hour here making four pars at the end and getting it, getting it in the house? You know, that's that's all the game right there. Uncle Bob always said that every hole there's a crisis, <laughs> and he's so right. You know, ball's in a divot, or do I hit eight iron, do I hit seven iron, uh, Ball's below my feet, and there's trouble to the right. I mean, there's always something in this game. And we're, we're all great if we hit them down the middle and on the green and two-putt or make putts. Everybody's a genius then. The good players are the ones that can hit nine greens or 12 greens and have a bad day and shoot 69. Those are the good players. Here's a game that uh, we played in Oregon. We really didn't have much of a – we had a good program at University of Oregon when I played, but we didn't have an experienced guy that coached us. So what we did, one of the games we played, and I, I took this all the way on tour my early years with Mike Cowan, Fluff is Mike. What we did is we, uh, we'd purposely miss every green. We might pick right bunker, left bunker, shoot long. So we'd go out in an 18-hole round of golf with the guys on the team. And if you didn't hit it, if you were aiming at the right bunker and you pulled it on, you'd have to throw it back into the bunker. So at the end of the round, we would have missed all 18 greens, and you see who gets it up and down the most. And if you can shoot in the 70s, you had a pretty good up and down day. And what I would do is Fluff and I would do that in pro-am rounds on tour. I might, I might play four or five holes and try to make birdie, but then on the fifth or sixth hole, Fluff would purposely give me the wrong iron, maybe two irons too short and I'd miss the green short, and then he would just walk up and give me a club. It might have been a sandwich pitch, but he'd give me an eight iron. And I think that was one of the reasons why I stayed on tour so long, 
was because I made it work. You don't always get all the the the, the perfect lie and the perfect situations, and you got to make it work. And that's the one thing that I see with kids standing there hitting balls all day. They got to you've got to learn how to make it work, and that that's the one thing that I do see in successful programs like yours, historic programs like in Wick. Uh, even you can get the most out of these kids, whether they realize it's happening or not. Yeah, uh, agree. And uh, you know, quite frankly, we don't see their best golf a lot of times. Um, it's pretty good, but then the ones that go on, uh, Webb Simpson, you know, Bill Haas, my nephew, Kyle Reifers, very nice player, played for me in college, and y- you don't really see their best, and then you're so happy when they have success later in life because we all get it at a different time. But going back to your <laughs> to your story there, Peter, I don't think you could do that today with today's kid and make him ab- have him hit him in bunkers and stuff because he would come back with a comment. Oh well, that's just that's negative thinking. You know, that's negative thinking. But I totally agree with you. I I love the fact that Fluff gave you the eight iron when it was a sand wedge pitch. They wouldn't know what to do. They they oh well, yeah. I chipped it forty, no. 40 feet high because I had the wrong club. Well, no no, improvise. You know, figure it out. But you're yeah. it, it's too. One thing Uncle Bob has talked about a lot is the scoring and everything. Is you know, player the conditions of today's courses are immaculate i mean the greens you make more eight ten footers the chipping you usually have a really nice lie so everything is conducive to great scoring and for them to not be able to use their 60 degree to chip or whatever oh my goodness you, you just you you got them you knew if you were playing that game the one club game or that game right there you, you'd kill them the easiest way to convince a kid to aim at the right bunker and hit it in the right bunker they get a point for that Right bunker is a lot smaller than the green. So if you do <laughs> good, hit it in the bunker point. where you're aiming, whether it's the right bunker or the left bunker or the short bunker or a pot bunker, if you could actually do that, they give you a point. It, it, it's a game that we played in college to where not only not only was it the end score, missed 18 greens, got it up and down, say, 12 times, but you also got points for actually hitting the target where you were aiming. And I, and I think it, it made us better players because we actually worked on precision. At the same time, we worked on recovery because I say it on TV all the time. Golf's a game of recovery. It's not a game of precision. It's about who can get away with their worst shots the most. Well, listen, yeah. I, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much, and I hope you and your family are doing okay. We're doing great, Peter. Uh, I've actually got a bunch of old media guides here from 1974 up until about 2000 when they went went away with them. And um, I've found a player in each book and uh, each year, and I've written them a note and a little Wake Forest golf sticker and then a T-shirt in there. So um, I sent out about 25. I got another 20 to go out here, and they have been very well received. So uh, I'm just trying to stay in touch. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Jake's Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Jacobson. These have been my takes. What are yours?